America has always been depicted as the land of the free, the land of opportunity. Yet in many corners of our country, it's been made clear that that opportunity is reserved for a select few. Who does this narrative serve? Who does it exclude? Fighting to ensure our promises of freedom and prosperity has never been more relevant than today. After all, we have nothing to lose but our chains. This is the Freedom Fighters. Hi, and welcome to our first ever episode of The Freedom Fighters. Uh, my name is Miranda Grundy. I am a recent graduate of Brown University where I studied ethnic studies and urban studies. So it's very much so a history-based and social justice-focused concentration, um, looking at the histories of minority ethnic groups in our countries um, and things like immigration patterns and hierarchies of power and um, all of the impacts and implications that has had over time, uh, financially, um, socially, and politically. And so it's a lot of examining structures of power, examining my own privileges as a white woman in the US, um, and then I combined it with some urban studies courses to think about specifically urban issues and the ways that urban public policy either advantages or disadvantages particular groups. So I'm excited to be here today with some friends from a group um, called Providence Haven, which strives to connect different creatives in our community and bring our communities together and teach people to take charge of their lives and pursue what they really want to pursue. And so this is our, well, really my uh, baby here, our first step towards doing that, um, the Freedom Fighters podcast. Um, so we're going to do a bunch of social justice-based episodes on a variety of topics, um, but we will get into our first one today shortly. And I'm going to have my other, uh, the rest of my team introduce themselves. Yeah. Um, thanks, Miranda, for that awesome intro, uh, introduction. Uh, my name is Jerison Asensio. I'm a young uh, Rhode Island native who is really getting more into activism lately and trying to understand what the, the scene around here is like so that um, I can help to take charge of things after seeing what happened to George Floyd and everything. Um, I'm part of Providence Haven. Um, I do a lot of stuff like uh, running a podcast um, and currently I'm working on making curriculums so focused around helping people uh, examine leadership in their lives and become more effective leaders as well as more effective socially for their goals. Um, and I'm here because I feel like on the one aspect uh, education is a really important way for empowering people but on the other aspect there are also really relevant things happening in um, our world today that need to be dealt with so I feel like I can't just spend my time trying to teach I need to make sure that I'm being active in the community as well um, and with that I feel like I hope you understand me a little bit and my name was Jerison Austin so um, passing it on to my co-host Norman yeah thanks Jer yeah. hey what's up everybody I'm Norman I'm a guy in his mid-twenties, just trying to figure out everything like you are, and, and possibly understanding the proximity of time that we live in, as well as ourselves. And the conversations that myself and friends have are centered around ideas that have deep social understanding and trying to really rearrange how we treat each other, not just person to person, but a society to a society. And right now we're at the local level here in Providence, Rhode Island. Been pretty active for the past 
year now dedicating our time, our writing, and now we're getting into the monetization of our company to really become something concrete in Providence. And this is our newest step to that. So the first topic that we want to delve into um, is if you've been paying any attention to current issues, you probably know that police brutality um, and prison and police abolition are really big topics swirling around in everyone's minds right now given um, recent current events. But first we want to frame this in the strange time that it is um, within the coronavirus pandemic um, because we definitely see this situation as bringing to light all of the issues that we already knew existed. Um, they're coming to the forefront and we can really see how fragile the systems that we've been relying on are. So things like having your health care be dependent on employment and then losing your job by no fault of your own is completely preventable and I think people are seeing this and so we're seeing rising support for things like Medicare for All. Um, we're also, it's very evident, the racialized health outcome disparities um, in terms of access to health services that communities of color have or lack um, in terms of environmental racism, putting people of color at risk and pushing them to the outskirts of what land is safely inhabitable in our neighborhood. So things like pollution plants, chemical plants, cancer-inducing chemicals um, in the water and in our housing materials, all of that is segregated into zones where communities of color often live. Um, we're also seeing the impacts of housing insecurity um, which has already been so high, but as, uh, you know, rents keep rising um, to these insane rates and wages are staying stagnant, um, it's becoming a really detrimental problem. So, you know, in the term, um, in the time of this pandemic, rent forgiveness is definitely going to have to be um, a reality that we hopefully implement soon and implement um, in the wake of this. Mm. Um, and then, you know, also looking at food insecurity, uh, we have record numbers of families gathering at community food banks, uh, record unemployment, and again, black and brown communities being hit the hardest. So we look at all of this and we need to then consider police brutality being at unavoidable, just really cognizant and um, noticeable, a noticeable high, a tangible high that we see in our media. Um, you know, already in so many subtle ways, black and brown communities are told that their lives don't matter equally, but um, this this struggling is always going on, but now we have to see it in this very amplified um, sense, seeing senseless violence enacted upon black bodies on video, in photos, um, and that is the only way that we are able to hold police departments accountable or make people pay attention to this, so it's becoming a very scary time. And it's causing a lot of anguish in those communities. Of course. You know. And we're not quite prepared on how to deal with that, because this is such a new time in mm -hmm. everyone's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, so we want to emphasize that you know, rage and rage against these systems, the way we've been indoctrinated into them, the way that they have persisted for so long when they are so outdated, we want to acknowledge that that rage is just, that rage is powerful, and that rage is productive. Um, and for my positionality, I try to remember that it's not the position of me as a white person to tell black people enduring a pain that I can never truly know how they should mourn, how they should grieve or rage because all of those things are the precursor to revolution, and that is what we are seeing. We are at a point where revolution is inevitable, mm -hmm. and it is going to come. Mm -hmm. So... What, what does that revolution look like to you? 
<laughs> we're going to have to see. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to see. But when we talk about um, abolition and rebuilding different systems later, I think we'll talk about a bit of that. Um, but I want to ask you guys, um, when we look at this system and we look at and acknowledge the origins, so to talk about some of the origins, um, in the U.S. South, the first police departments were created to catch runaway slaves. And um, to touch upon our Mexican-American community, uh, the Texas Rangers, there's so much of a history of violence to the way that they ran things um, in Texas and in those southern border states. Um, Significantly high rates of them targeting and racially profiling uh, Mexican-Americans for crimes or minor crimes and then having no real system of accountability, no judicial processing for um, these victims and lots of like mass uh, lynchings and along along the whole color line. decisions and really taking Mm -hmm. a whole group of people and somehow just ignoring their most basic rights. And generalizing them all together. And so when we look at this, we need to remember that this is a product of capitalism because capitalism requires an underclass of exploited individuals and exploited labor that we can socially control. And to clarify, um, Norman Baker here is uh, Mexican-American, um, and I, uh, Jerison M.K. Verdean-American. Uh, Miranda is... Um, uh, Italian-American. Italian-American. Yeah. So I think it's also important to, when we talk about this current moment, contextualize it in the way the um, system has progressed over time from those roots. So even after the abolishment of slavery, uh, former slaves were kept in a position of indentured servitude um, through the concept of sharecropping, where they could technically own um, about 40 acres of land, but they were still in the same position working that land for the benefit of their former owners um, to sustain themselves, but also in the same kind of position of just manual labor that um, they had been subjected to before. Um, And they weren't given the same educational opportunities to be socially mobile and mobile in status. Um, And then there was the implementation of black codes, um, which were in some ways positive because they legitimated marriage and um, children uh, within black families, but and also land owning, but um, they really did a lot, very little to give black people legal rights. They couldn't testify against white people in courts. They couldn't serve on juries or anything like that. And um, the real aim of it was to get as many of those former slaves imprisoned um, for really subjective reasons on harsh and strict um, laws like vagrancy, the um, practice of being unemployed. But the loophole there is that your former employer, so your former slave owner, had to approve your new job. So if you didn't want to be in that same position, you wanted to change, um, and you didn't have the approval of your former slave owner, that subjects you to being arrested. And there was lots of other things like just small misdemeanors and trivial offenses that were criminalized as as felonies. So this was before and then in the wake of an era of reconstruction um, where black people did gain a bit of, in a short period, rising political involvement and political leverage, um, even having some black governors in certain states. But it quickly became um, a system of backlash against that social 
progression um, with trying to imprison as many black people as possible and then put them into this system of convict leasing um, where their labor was then unpaid labor still legal under the 13th Amendment, was then exploited in mines, um, working to make railroads, in making highways and the infrastructure um, to really build up our country. So when we say that this land was built upon bodies and labor, bodies of color and stolen labor from those people, this kind of underclass that we've been talking about kept at a point of no social mobility, no opportunity for social mobility, and we talk about the concept of reparations or the looting and rioting like we talked about before, um, this is what we mean, that the the labor that built our very country up is not being, the people who did that are not being accredited and are not being given um, the opportunities they deserve, even still today. So um, from that point, it shifted into Jim Crow segregation, um, as I'm sure people are pretty familiar with, but it's a lot more strict laws, a lot more reasons to be arrested, and just a growing population of a racially disparate population of black people in our prisons. And this continued on until 1964. And then we fast forward a little bit and we come to the war on drugs, the Reagan era, um, which largely targeted black urban life and was so so messed up in so many ways because behind behind the backs of the American people, our government was funneling in drugs from Southern American countries, working and paying, working with and paying those countries to funnel drugs into our urban areas so that our policing systems could then criminalize those people for the drugs that our government contributed to putting there. And it really just became this convoluted system to further criminalize um, and racially profile as many people as possible. Um, And then we move on to the 1994 crime bill, which largely militarized the police in new ways and created um, new and harsher sentences for certain offenses and increased federal penalties, things like the third strike rule um, that we still see impacting people today. And it also funneled billions and billions of dollars into funding for prisons and police departments and things like border control. So all of the defunding talk that we have swirling around today is um, this was a big moment in our legislature, our, con- our country's legislature that inflated um, these budgets and created this process of continual inflation of these budgets uh, that we're still dealing with today. One thing I also think is important to mention, um, through some work I did with a nonprofit in Brooklyn, uh, I worked on a project about youth policing and the NYPD's gang database, which still exists today. And in order to be put on that gang database, there's really vague and unjust and invalid reasons why a child, because it's often youth, end up on that list. And when they do, they are subject to stop and frisk still. They're subject to wherever they are seen, they could be arrested on the spot. So this, um, the, the reasons that they claim to, they claim gang association is um, as vague as things from giving a ride to someone who is suspected to be in a gang, wearing a certain color in a picture on social media, um, I learned a story about uh, a lot of Section 8 housing there gets raided by police um, just 
on the random drop of a dime looking for drugs. And so one man's home was raided and they were him and his mother were shaken awake in the middle of the night out of their beds. And the cops found a cooking scale in their kitchen with no other drugs, no other evidence. And they put him on this list, um, of, I think it was 120 individuals in the Bronx who were accused of all of these heinous crimes when in truth a lot of them just had misdemeanors and they served, they were forced to serve the time anyway. So we we need to remember that gang violence has been decreasing for over a decade and the, the need for that does not necessarily exist anymore and it's also important to remember the origins of gangs or to fight white vigilante violence, to stand up for your community. And um, the original intentions were often based in helping their own communities, providing things like bikes for kids or school books, um, really trying to boost up each other. So uh, even the name Crips was um, reclaimed in a way because of this perception that these communities were innately crippled because their infrastructure is falling apart because they don't have a lot of monetary resources. Their schools and healthcare and all of that falling apart. So um, this crippled kind of community has this perception and it often is a self-fulfilling prophecy that, prophecy that um, internal fighting for resources will occur in these communities where people are just trying to survive. So it pits these groups against each other, um, especially like off of division of like racial lines. So, um, Latinx communities being pitted against, uh, African American communities, things like that. Um, and it leads to no working class solidarity. It leads to the people in these underclasses, not realizing the power that they could have together. And I mean, there's no guarantee that that power could make super big differences, but it is a it's a form of disenfranchisement of these people and it's a way to make them purposely destroy themselves and not see sometimes not see that the doing this just perpetuates those who are empowered i think that that is a thing that is a rising form of consciousness that is happening happening so this gang violence decrease in gang violence is definitely connected to um people realizing this is meant to make us destroy ourselves. This is meant to keep the same people in power. This is to keep us suppressed. This is to keep our needs suppressed, our thoughts and ideals and wishes suppressed. And these communities do have desire. They have desire for things to change. When we research these communities, we can't look at them as damaged. We can't do damage-based desire, uh, damage-based research. It has to be desire-based because they're already fighting for, they're already advocating for all the issues they know better than anyone. The people closest to the problem have the answers to the problem. Um, so when we look at these communities, this is a really essential thing to keep in mind. Slave and former slave descendants didn't and still don't have the same opportunities for social mobility. And we can see that with how the Jim Crow segregation laws impacted our society by making our judicial and executive and legislative branches very biased towards the kinds of people that they help and, and the force that they do it in and you see that in the 13th amendment when yes that was the abolition of involuntary servitude yeah except for uh people who were imprisoned uh that loophole existed in that law so it was 
abolition in some sense, but so many people still funneled into a system where they are building our economy, our country from the ground up with unpaid labor and exploitation. And while under the reign of radical republicanism uh, creates an unjust bias, it's still uh, an agenda that's propelled because a lot of these GOP politicians see things uh, that they need to have more control. And instead of giving rein to some of the state-run facilities, they want to... I mean, I think what you're what you're saying is definitely embodied in like our housing policy throughout time. All of that segregation leading to a really big wealth gap um, between black families and white families because of the neighborhoods that they were pushed into. So that's like a concrete example of that. And that relates back to survival versus prosperity. If you're being pushed because of gerrymandering into these places and neighborhoods that you continue seeing this type of uh, social norms, and then you're going to repeat what you are yeah. uh, or what you see and become that and unfortunately that's that's come from so many places such as the white scare such as selfish capitalist endeavors that have people supporting the east end and forgetting that we need to pump money into resources everywhere so to bring up the full scale of yeah like south providence uh a lot of those places that were redlined and then gerrymandering pushes us mm. into different districts that make often democratic or minority voices uh, less impactful in the state. It's a political strategy on both sides that occurs and really needs to <laughs> come to a halt. And then these kids never realize that they actually have true power in this say, especially when they hit the, the voting age and a lot of them just sideline it because they're not they're not taught that they too are constituents and they can change how we deal with things. Mm -hmm. And with some black codes being implemented, sure, it did help a lot of kids and families create a foundation for themselves and make their way into America. But a lot of the negatives that still is seen today is aimed to keep white supremacy in place. And you can see that with radical republicanism where we have right-winged individuals and even to this day, neo-Republicans making decisions to have choices confined by people that should be taking care of these issues at home. So rather than having a laissez-faire stance on this, our government still wants to try to control how the families conduct themselves. I mean, looking at those origins of these systems and seeing what is still going on today, some of the most recent cases being George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Vanessa Guillen, I, I believe is how you pronounce her last name, um, all victims of state-sanctioned violence by at the hands of police, at the hands of different forms of law enforcement, and even at the hands of our military um, officials with their most recent case. But how does that make you guys feel looking at um, the way that these things originated and have progressed over time and finding that we are still in this position? Well, it, it just seems like the police were the watchdogs of um, our society. And, like, that role has evolved somewhat over the course of time, but it still is the case and still functions in almost the same, uh, with the same perspective as to um, the upholding of property um, and the, like, continuation of the current system. Mm -hmm. It's a real disregard for, like, human life and human value mm. um, 
Although, the, I do feel that the, like, intention that many people go into the prison, like, academies with, or for the police academies, rather, with, isn't always negative. Because sometimes, like, I know people who have joined, like my uncle, who are very uh, focused on trying to create a protective environment. It's just that the, like, system that they go into is, like, really, really good at turning them into, mm -hmm. like, uh, a different entity than the rest of us you yeah. know they they really become um a part of their inner police culture mm -hmm. you know um and it really colors their actions over time mm. that's going to bring me into our next topic and an article that i want to reference from medium.com do you have any other thoughts i'm just hanging on that idea that policemen and women really have to battle and take on so much of society and what they're what we're capable of, right? And I actually think this is part of what you were about to say, and really it's the thought that they need so much training and so much sensitivity and this balance of logic that a lot of us tend to like grace maybe a couple of times a day. Mm -hmm. But these people are really on the frontier and edge of some people's lives. Yeah. So they're at, they're being asked to do a so multitude much. of jobs with they're such stressed. little training. Just the people themselves are stressed. No, let alone yeah. all the legislative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, thinking about the protests that have been going on nationwide, which is has been has been really awesome. Um, the turnouts are getting a little smaller, but there's still a lot of people showing up. It was recently the one month anniversary of the George Floyd um, death, so. The fact that this is continued momentum is really good, but something that the media likes to portray most often is the rooting and the, the rioting. Um, so to talk about these things, we have to see that there is productivity in them in the sense that the goal is to disrupt, to disrupt a capitalist system, to disrupt the everyday going-ons that happen. Um, when we march through the street, we're doing just that. When we, When people loot a store, you're obviously doing that. You're disrupting the system that tells you you need to work and work and work to receive pay to then get these things. Um, but it's a system that hasn't been working for the people whose labor built it. So when we think about looting today, black people, people of color, largely all minority people have been oppressed and exploited in ways that make it so they cannot loot a land that was built upon their backs and their stolen labor. Um, firstly, stolen land from our Native American ancestors and all of their resources, um, but then all of that labor to build our infrastructure of our cities, of, um, you know, our highways, um, stores, these stores that are being looted, all of this is firmly, like, tied to the labor of people of color that has not been paid for. So when we talk about reparations or some kind of deferred payment, if there's a Walmart with the glass shattered. You want to walk in and take a TV? Like, that's none of my business at this point. Um, but, yeah, it's it's something that is a symptom of a system that hasn't been working for too long. If you are so poor that you need this instant gratification. I think it kind of sounds like your business. Like, obviously, people haven't mandated society or themselves to not have this kind of travesty happen. So, mm -hmm. at that point, that's where I get really angry and start contemplating like how can I do something about it yeah yeah and little thing on the side was 
leadership and how to discharge that appropriately mm -hmm. and teaching people how to discharge that with morality. Mm -hmm. A little social concept that Providence Haven speaks about and practices with each other. And it's really difficult, I think, to know where to start with fixing the problem um, within any sort of political legislation kind of antics that I'm not immediately going to be able to do something tomorrow about it. Mm -hmm. But what I can do today is understand how we're talking to each other and why we're talking that way. And with that, I'm just trying to understand with you two why these people, well, I'm learning with you two that these people really have, my people have been in this convoluted dilemma for centuries. So it's hard to point a finger at anybody, mm. but I'm tired of people pointing fingers too. Yeah. It's time to turn that finger back to the, the broader systems that mm -hmm. have done this. Right, like instead of being mad at each other for the screw-ups that, yes, each culture has, mm -hmm. it'd be so much cooler just to like say, all right, we can all point at this one entity that could really help us. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, somebody like Providence Haven who's inclusive, diverse, and open to good suggestions mm -hmm. is a great place to bring the best out of society. Mm. And that is part of their goal, to pit working-class um, peoples, working class families and communities of vast minority, uh, of vast ethnicities against one another to not see that their solidarity is what is going to uplift us all. Mm -hmm. So to open up a space that can provide that, that can encourage, inspire people to pursue their goals and make careers and lifetimes out of them is very wow. powerful because that requires togetherness, that requires mm -hmm. us to mm -hmm. work together. Yeah, and that space, really, like there needs to be more resourcing for after-school programs, more resourcing for daycares, for people that can't afford to watch their kids while they go to work. Mm -hmm. And that way we can help the system that unfortunately funnels kids who leak through the education system into the prisonization system. Mm -hmm. yeah. If we can like procure the funds for that, we could save incarceration rates by two-thirds mm -hmm. for at-risk youth. Mm -hmm. Do so much. Yeah, I would love to learn how, like, even maybe Mount uh, Pleasant High School, like, how many kids from there end up going into prison within, like, five years of leaving. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, that, like, that's our backyard. Yeah. You know? Like, that's a heartbreak anywhere. But mm -hmm. to know that this place is such a grander and great community, mm -hmm. and then to hear that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so... One thing I wanted to bring into conversation um, when we're talking about like policing of, of property and policing of a certain class of people and their belongings over the average people is um, this article I recently read on medium.com that touches on a lot of topics we've been discussing um, and we can dive deeper into them, but it's called Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop. So if you've heard the expression, all cops are bastards, that's been going around. Um, this article was published anonymously by an officer, ACAB, the abbreviation, which I thought was very clever, um, but uh. it's definitely got a lot of evidence that this person has been in law enforcement. And one of the most striking things that I read, um, they spoke a lot about the, the training um, to become a part of a police system and how it is kind of an indoctrination into the system with tactics that are used by abusers to 
separate someone from their friends, their community, their family, and say, no, this is just, I am the only one who has your back. So police are taught in this way that it, it is us, it is the police department versus the community. And everyone out in the community is out to do bad and out to hurt us, and we must protect each other above all things. And how can we ask them to care about and protect a community they've been pitted against? Um, is one of the most striking things. Um, and then actually thinking about the actual time um, that a police officer's throughout the year, the percentages of time that they spend on certain things. Um, and we've conceptualized police as this, you know, this force of protection to come and stop active crimes, to alleviate crime as it is happening. But the reality is that that hardly ever happens. In most uh, police departments across our country, it's less than 5% of time for most police officers is spent on an active like crime, an active call to a crime that they can then go to and stop. Most of the time it's you get called afterwards, you write a report, you move on, you, you process um, the persecutor if you um, if you do find enough, them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So this is like talk about an extended system that's one slow yeah. and two backed up and all the all the law let me get it. Logistics. My goodness. Logistics is not the word. It's <laughs> legislative. Keep fumbling that word, guys. Sorry. With all the legislative tape, uh, red tape that they have, the system gets congested. And then we end up waiting months mm -hmm. for someone to go to see their jury. Yeah. And on top of this time, again, because of the proximity of 2020 and the issues we're having, everything's slow. We have friends that are being affected by city halls not being open. We actually were affected and mm -hmm. waiting for uh, our certificate of sales. Of sales, yeah. yeah. Um, we were looking to become vendors, um, and uh, we still are looking to become vendors and put some of our content out in different locations um, and uh, festivals. And um, right before I was able to go into city hall to. Um, get the badge that would have allowed me to be a vendor. City Hall closed down and then everything shut. Um, but it seems like uh, they're beginning to open up again, um, in Providence at least, so I should be able to go in soon. Um, it hasn't opened up fully yet, but they've put out a date within the next uh, two weeks or so. Slowly, yeah, along with Phase 3 around here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, going back to having other official buildings closed, like court systems are really backing up thousands of people that are having issues in detention now and immigration employment and in like foster care these these friends of ours are stuck and we're trying to reach out to people who understand this and people who have resources that we can all pull together mm -hmm. yeah um a couple more points that i pulled away from this article just the sheer um, volume of jobs and duties that we are asking police officers to perform after a mere 1,000 hours of training. It's far too many. So if we think about it, they have to be active crime and crisis de-escalators. They have to be mental health professionals, drug abuse experts, child psychologists, domestic abuse helpers, school counselors, community leaders, traffic experts 
public safety officers authorized to use force, sexual assault specialists, even like marriage counselors. That's 12 different jobs someone oh is goodness. supposed to learn. For years of all, school that goes into yes, this one human. That are all like so emotionally complicated intense. Mm -hmm. No kidding. Yeah. And then you have to be intelligent other than just emotionally, like yeah. comprehensively. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, of course. And you're obviously learning the law too, but why why is it that we have this one catch-all person who is mm. armed with the power to kill us and one line from this article is like when a, when a gun is the only not the only weapon that they have but when a gun is your defense and your weapon everything feels like target practice mm -hmm. even if it's like a mundane situation that doesn't wow. need to be escalated to that point we are asking someone armed to come and resolve this broad broad range of issues so um some mm. suggestions that the author gave as far as changes is one to like reflect on that how many jobs we're asking these people to do and what kinds of things could exist as alternatives um but no more qualified immunity which is um something that police officers are granted um basically if they commit a crime in response to a crime while they're actively like responding to a situation they are immune from the consequences which what a loophole is yeah which is um that's wow why so many of these cops get away exactly mm -hmm. no fucking um joke. yeah they also said break down the power of police unions because that makes it really hard to root out bad cops mm -hmm. because you have this whole team of people behind you who again are behaving like they've been brainwashed by abusers this police force is all you have. We are the only ones looking out for each other. So it's this kind of very convoluted logic. Um, Sounds like then, a very closed matrix of thinking. Yeah. And like fenced in by, again, generations of cultivation and oppression in all the facets that people can think of. And the vision of cops, their, their lifestyle, yeah, mm -hmm. kind of segregates them into this very hardcore community. And... Yeah. I think now more than ever, they're becoming very conscious. You know, there's plenty of evidence that they're team workers, that they do peaceful uh, mental practices and trying to stay on top of things because, like you're saying, now we're seeing the jux between who's really trying and the people who are unfortunately harming. Yeah. I think something very common today is implicit bias training. Which sounds like a good thing, but when mm. you look at this system that is so deeply entrenched in racist, sexist, homophobic, violent culture, that is treated as a joke to them. They sit there and they laugh through these trainings, and however many they have, it's not actually like reaching them. And implicit bias is not something you can change implicit in a three-hour session. Mm -hmm. That is something internalized throughout your entire life through how you are socialized and what you are taught. Mm. So... This other idea he has is to require malpractice insurance. So, like, when a doctor fudges a surgery and accidentally kills someone when it should have been a routine surgery that he had under control... Oh, my goodness, yeah. They have to have insurance to provide for that family afterwards. So this concept of, you know, a police officer shoots an innocent, unarmed kid, why don't they personally have some liability yeah, in that situation? Yeah, remunerative. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um... The others are defund, demilitarize, and disarm. Um, and no, 
ourselves as citizens be cognizant of the fact that police officers are taught to learn all of the laws in ways very innate that like citizens don't even know and so they know how to fabricate and lie and make something an illegal charge when nothing like that actually occurred they are incentivized to get the most arrests and the most stop possible for their department for themselves um so we have to look at these people and say no you're not on our side and especially if we belong to a minority community historically you have not been on our side but what we can do is we can protect each other and when we talk about this bad apple narrative um certainly there are good cops with good intentions and morality but it when you are indoctrinated into police forces in this system the broader system itself is systematically oppressive systematically racist sexist violent homophobic all of that so we i've in the past thought of this as a broken system and in a lot of ways i still do because because fundamentally things do need to change but Actually, something that a new perspective I was offered recently through organizing with something called the Working Families Party is that the function, uh, the system does function just as intended from its origination. Um, and that's why abolition is the only option moving forward because you, can, you cannot reform this. It is beyond reform. Um, it has always been focused on property over people, protecting property, land, uh, businesses owned by white men. Primarily, that's that's where the history is rooted. And, you know, in those times of the early conception of our country, black people were considered property. In South Carolina, there were laws that if you are a white person, you see a runaway slave, you have to chase them down, arrest them, and report it. And that is just like... These are, these are the roots stuck in the system. These are the reasons why you cannot separate the racial oppression, the racism, all of this from, from the system as it functions now. It is working just as it was intended to, to keep the same people in power, to be a force of social control, to be a force of social oppression in so many ways, and that is that is so important to remember to us too when we're speaking about these situations uh, that are prevalent today. And when we when we talk about this issue of under-resourced communities, it really starts from a young age in many of these urban communities of color with public schools that are underfunded. And something that's been happening for a really long time is that the police officers who police these areas don't actually live in these urban communities, but live except live instead in suburbs like in new york for example a lot of them live in long island or in the wealthier counties up above the bronx um so their ever rising salaries the taxes from those salaries are going to funding their communities their suburban communities which are already more wealthy which are already more resourced while the areas that they claim to serve these urban areas have deteriorating infrastructure housing schools and these under-resourced schools um really leads to obviously less successful students and less motivated students and this school to prison pipeline becomes not just a single something that impacts a single life but it becomes a long-term intergenerational setback because you know we view education as one of the best opportunities to get ahead but when people's quality of their education is dependent on the wealth of your neighborhood 
which is also a huge factor as property taxes go into funding public schools and in low-income neighborhoods, the properties are worth less. The schools get less funding. And we, we really need to restructure the way that we do this because even when we've tried to pass efforts to restructure that and in, um, involve federal funding like Bush's No Child Left Behind policy, which um, depended the amount of resources you got federally as a school depended on your standardized state uh, testing scores. And schools that didn't do well were punished and funding was taken away, while schools that were already doing well were given more money. So it, it was just this convoluted kind of reasoning um, to say we should take things away from, take resources away from already under-resourced areas. It, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. So when we talk about defunding the police, it's also redistributing, taking some of that money, redistributing, redistributing it to serve the actual communities that are in need, the actual communities that are being over-policed and over-criminalized and having the same racial outcomes and racial disparities in success and in wealth accumulation over time. Um, those things can really be diverse, uh, reversed or begin to be reversed if we redistribute those funds and we develop our own methods of community accountability in place. And that's an issue that you could see even in the D.A.R.E. program, uh, where the town that I went to school and grew up in, it was it was difficult seeing a lot of kids return to the issues that they were once part of. Even though like great facilities and resources were open to them, the drug abuse resistance education program in my youth was centered around deterrence instead of trying to propagate something that was an allowance or like showing them how to use the skills that's around them. It was a lot of issues just pointing at one thing saying, don't do this, instead of expanding our horizons with this is what's available. And unfortunately, the program was run by uh, school resource officers who conducted it in a manner that was, again, focused on the punitive system and aspects on our judicial system instead of showing how to interact outside of what their trying to not shape us to be. They were really trying to tell us, don't be criminals, instead of saying, you can be an educator, for example. And a lot of these at-risk youths dealt with this daily, and they were confined in groups that, with interactions that only, uh, they shared a nomenclature and vernacular that kept them to returning to these bad habits. And that's because we are told, don't do this and that, and we are never given the linguistics to say and figure out what opportunities are out there. The programs provided a foundation of understanding and the deterrence of getting into drug habits, but they never provided direct opportunities. And that's where I was fortunate in seeing how the system worked as a young child. I would go to the YMCA on my own habits because I wanted to be healthy and be around healthy people. I went to the local armory to go play basketball or foosball because that's just how I wanted to spend my time. But I never had to deal with issues that some of these kids at home had to go about with every single day with cousins that might be dealing drugs or parents that were on habits. And these types of issues could be taken care of way in advance if we had subsidies that helped with income that helped with taking care of kids going to youth programs um, and like per se 
getting kids into getting kids into after school programs and uh, and getting kids into after school programs and getting kids into child care programs uh, resources were close at hand but because they were never said look this is the alternative the recidivism recidiv because these resources were never directly provided you could see kids returning to their old habits and that put all these at risk youth back into the systems that try to correct them at and that wasn't the way to do it instead of saying this is what's available it was a lot of a lot of hand slapping and that goes pretty far back to how even our churches took care of issues but there hasn't been anything to fill those gaps for these kids that have all the time in the world and left to their own devices so they end up going back to what they understand the most and that's juvenile detention centers many of the kids in the town of Attleboro Mass where I grew up where the troubled kids uh, had all the free range because teachers didn't know how to handle them, stayed in trouble. And these kids were isolated into night classes, detention centers, and these programs were usually run by facilitators who had a difficult time relating to them because they came from different backgrounds and without the understanding of how some of these kids and their difficulties were at, say, their home life or, say, their street life, they were never treated with a more wholesome view of, of like, I'm sorry that this happened to you. How do we talk about it with you? And I just can't get over the fact that there was never an outlet given. It was more of trying to shut down a previous mentality. And that doesn't work, again, with being pushed into a survival versus prosperity mode. A lot of people are going to say, this is what I have to do, instead of looking at what could be. And when people live on the edge of possibility, they're going to fight instead of learn. And the fact that these kids have always been kept on the outskirts of high school and middle school social practices kept them in a mindset that unfortunately made them repeat the mistakes that got them there in the first place. You can't expect kids to get out of the hole they're in when they are kept in groups who push each other to continue making those same decisions. You gotta get these kids into wellness centers where they're treated almost like young adults and given full truths instead of whatever the alternatives are. So when we talk about defunding police, that's within the vein of abolition. Um, which is about a 30-year-old movement now, led by some really awesome activists and um, rooted in the idea of the abolition of slavery. Slavery. Um, so, to start, um, you know, abolition is a really hard thing to imagine, but what we can do at the beginning, um, there's a distinction between abolition and reform, and I like to think about early abolition steps as something I call non-reformist reform. So, Things you can do, changes you can make in a system every step of the way from policing through the court system, through um, criminal justice processings, and then prisons. Um, anything you can do that does not return power to the state, but in fact takes it away and enables the human involved to have some more agency 
Um, it may not necessarily like completely alter or dismantle the system, but it's taking a small amount of power, giving it back to the victim um, in the situation. So that can look a lot of different ways, um, but it's it's very different than reform initiatives that say, let's throw more money at a police department, let's train them in this way, let's militarize them in this way, and things will get better. Um, it's far different. and. So abolition in the long run also looks like a redistributing of funds. So like we were talking about before, putting it into education to decrease this self-fulfilling prophecy of the school to prison pipeline, putting it into affordable housing initiatives, putting it into care for our veterans and our elderly, community food banks, things like that. Um, things that we could honestly utilize on one of our uh, brackets that we could categorize ourselves as a um, entity, business entity. And with our endeavors heading towards philanthropic thoughts like that, we could easily get ourselves into uh, 5013C, which is nice wording for a nonprofit that we could set up with the IRS as a 5013C. And the attention with that could be to advocate for better rights whether through a non-reformist reform idea where we are supportive for educational purposes uh, which is one criteria that that particular form needs we could help out somebody else as a fiscal sponsor and promote them as well be an umbrella company that way anybody with a great idea and passion and wants to get Providence off can immediately start working with us. There's all sorts of grant writing opportunities that we could talk together about. If you have an idea that veterans aren't getting enough shelter around here, well, all right then, we could definitely get something started. If there's not enough funding, where's funding gonna come from? Tons of ways to figure out how to help out our current systems. Yeah. When we think about abolition I think a lot of people want to say well what what is going to take the place of what we have now and mm -hmm. the answer is there's no the issue with what we have now is that it is a singular system funneled into our government that has all authority over the livelihood and naming who is worthy of full citizenship naming who is worthy of life naming who like almost trending on fascism yeah like it's just too involved in our lives yeah so when we break that down, the answer is not to replace it with some unitary um, nexus. Well, nexus might actually be the right yeah, word. Yeah, so. Some unitary um, entity, but nexus instead of a nexus of different services that are accessible mm. to all people, free ideally, accessible as far as public transportation to get to those services, but things like... Um, mental health and counseling services, things like marriage counseling or dating abuse services, drug and alcohol prevention and treatment services, um, anything for mental health needs or mental health crises, um, all of those things or, you know, places to go when you, your family gets evicted and you need to find a new home, places to go where you're, when you need food, when you're facing unemployment, services to help people get back on their feet because Without a society where people are deprived of the basic necessities, we wouldn't have this kind of, so much of 
the, those being fed into this criminal justice system, it's just on the basis of survival crime. It's on the fact that we haven't made it accessible to all to live a life where they have the basic necessities. And we, when we look at our recidivism rate and people coming out of prison just to end up back in it, it is so high, it's 70%, which is insanely high compared to other countries. Um, but that is because we don't offer people the basic necessities, and when you get out and you have a criminal record, it's insanely harder to find housing, employment, all of that. Mm -hmm. it's, so. al it's almost begging our prisoners to just go, go back to the crimes they were committing originally. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, so thinking about those things, a new nexus of services that we all take part in, and then also thinking about community accountability strategies that move away from violence, especially state-sanctioned violence. So. There are models of transformative and restorative justice um, solutions and tactics, which are really helpful. But they're they're based in small scale solutions for like each need and the belief that we can keep us safe if we socialize each other and teach each other that open, honest, and vulnerable conversations are okay, are positive, mm -hmm. are meaningful. Um, to normalize these, to normalize apologizing or holding ourselves and each other accountable for our wrongs when our wrongs do occur. And there are models for this everywhere. If we look back to Native American um, communities, some of the best models exist in their practices um, before we imposed legal systems um, upon them or started policing their legal systems. You know, there's, um, Jarrison told me this example the other day of if a family, um, if someone murders the father of a family, you know, their punishment moving forward is to provide for that family, step in and fill that role in a way that the father would have. Mm -hmm. So he is actively and forever repaying that debt, mm -hmm. not just sitting and rotting in a cell thinking about what he did or mm -hmm. just thinking about the fact that he wants to get out. Mm -hmm. It's um, an active repayment for that wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and then... I have this little graphic that I want to read off of as well about some the ways that community accountability works, but I think the first and uh, most prominent to start is to create and affirm values and practices that re resist abuse and oppression and encourage safety, support, and accountability, to develop sustainable strategies to address community members' abusive behavior, creating a process for them to account for their actions and transform their behavior provide safety and support to community members who are vi violently targeted that respects their self-determination. Um, and I think this was this one's really key. An article I read about transformative justice recently um, brought forward the point, like, yes, we have these ideals of systems of people to turn to when this, this, or this happens, but until those are completely in place, if someone wants to call the cops in a situation, if that's what they feel is the best choice, if that is what they feel they have to turn to, their best option, that is completely something that they should have the autonomy to decide for themselves. So it's not imposing a certain kind of model upon anyone, but it's creating a model that is vastly better than the one we have and mm -hmm. getting people to buy into it. Mm -hmm. And the last one I think is actually most important, but commit to ongoing development of all members of the community and the community itself to transform the political conditions that reinforce oppression and violence and make it happen in the first place. Mm. So I think we're at a moment in time where people are seeing it's overdue that we do that, where, do these things. Where do you see the majority of the political oppressions uh, striking the hardest? 
um, definitely communities of color and uh, especially during this pandemic, how they're being impacted. And I see a very dangerous and disheartening division getting greater and greater between, you know, this far right and this leftist kind of mindset in our country feels very divided. And, you know, that to me is a little scary to think about because it's either, I think it gets to a point where it's either revolution mm -hmm. or war, mm. civil war. and Or full fascism or militarization yeah. of yeah. the so government taking over. It's a bit steep. Um, and so are you saying that you don't see a, you don't see an opportunity for compromise? I don't see a neat resolution. I see compromise because I think that our government is built in a way where everything must be a compromise in some ways. And so we're not going to get everything that we want, especially right away. Mm. Um, but I think there's people fighting the good fight and I think they are growing. And I think people are showing up for their communities, realizing they can run as a representative without this spectacular political background uh, history of employment, but because they care and because they listen mm -hmm. and want the best for their communities. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, we're gonna... That's what we've been doing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one thing we wanna contextualize this, uh, these thoughts in is um, a quote from, well, it's actually from a video that Ruthie Gilmore put out. So she is, um, a foundational theorist on uh, this concept of abolition who's been working on it for 30 years with a bunch of other people. Um, but in this video, she speaks of the pandemic as a portal, as the pandemic as a way, a means to a new world because it is bringing into, is bringing to light all of the issues that we've known have existed for so, so long that it's inspiring people to find new ways to advocate for themselves. So one thing that comes to mind is called participatory defense. And that is training community and family members who have friends or family or just people they care about um, in the criminal justice system, going through the process of being arrested, uh, being convicted, and then their court processings, and then everything they have to figure out as they're moving through their sentences and the criminal justice system as a whole. So. When you're going through that, a lot of this information on how to navigate that best is not accessible. And when you are in the middle of that, you don't have the time to do the research. So this is a concept that provides training to these families and community members to help um, their impacted uh, friends, family, whomever, um, advocate best for themselves in um, the sense of how they could get the least harsh sentence, how they can assure that they're receiving their rights in um, the spaces of prisons, things like that. So that's a really big thing that um, I think we should utilize more for sure because it's one of those uh, non-reformist reforms that doesn't necessarily affect legislator but helps us to better navigate legislator um, and use it for in our best interest. Um, and then we also want to think about in this time, there's, I just read an article that there's going to be by the next first of the next month 28 million people in our country evicted and forced out of their homes and even things like um cutting the power uh to a place if an, uh, a landlord wants you to leave um illegal evictions uh landlords not giving people the due time or filing the paperwork first that is necessary so things like that things like your healthcare being connected to your job 
all of that is not, uh, it's things that we see very well now that we need to address. So this concept of the pandemic as a portal is, you know, a hopeful one, um, inspiring us to not live in despair, but inspiring us to envision a better future. And so just to leave you guys with um, an idea of the things we're doing in our community moving forward uh, centered around these topics, I recently uh, committed to a fellowship with Open Doors Rhode Island who works to, um, they work to, for the formerly incarcerated individuals in our community, help them find transitional and then permanent housing and occupational training and then um, permanent jobs eventually. So I'll be working with them and implementing some of those participatory defense classes that we were uh, talking about when we mentioned Ruthie Gilmore. And then we also have Jerison working with the formerly incarcerated union to help them build a website uh, and really help get their organization more cemented in the Providence community. And along with what my two comrades are working on, here with Providence Haven alongside our group known as RI Village, we have an open invite for community resource development. And this is a project to pull in local leaders who have their ideas on how to implement new legislation and to create these conversations that we need to have our house representatives and chair members take care of. What we're doing right now is creating an online presence based on what the individual's ideals are, such as where to allocate funds, who to talk to, and we don't have all the ideas, but what we do have is the soapbox or community leaders to come to and speak about their agendas. Our project is called Pedlink, and it is our equality initiative program. So what we're trying to do with that is invite people to join us in recording what their views are on the world, what they see not fit, and what they are interested in doing about it. This is a project that's been in development for about four months now. Uh, you can find hashtag Pedlink on both Instagram and on Facebook. And we're going to have that, like I said earlier, promoted on RI Village as well as Providence Haven. So if you want to get involved with us in recreating the local narrative, give us your contact information and a little bit about you. And that's um, an initiative that will take place because of coronavirus times um, in public spaces like the Providence Pedestrian Bridge, which is where it gets its name from. So I'll try to work in con conjunction uh, with that, with my work with Open Doors, trying to implement some like therapeutic-based art and writing or poetry, meditation classes, things like that. So then maybe those formerly incarcerated individuals can hone those skills and perform them um, publicly and um, build community in that way. So one final quote I wanted to leave us with um, around the, the concept of abolition. I think one of the questions or the arguments that we get most often is, um, but where will all the murders, murderers and the rapists go? Well, <laughs> our answer to that right now is they are already in our government. They are in our Congress. They are on our Supreme Court, in the White House, in the Oval Office, in boardrooms and fraternities. They are in police uniforms with badges and impunity to kill. Police and prisons in no way prevent or solve violence. They cause, hide, enforce, and perpetuate it. So something to keep in mind. Um, so thank you guys for joining in. Um, we will be signing off soon. And thanks so much for listening to thank our you. very first one. Yeah. 
And one final thing we wanted to mention, which has been a huge win in our community um, this past week, is that a bill that DARE has backed, uh, DARE is a organization that works on criminal justice reform initiatives as well as housing affordability and um, tenant advocacy, but they've been pushing along with a coalition of a bunch of other organizations for a bill called Fair Chance Licensing, which um, offers formerly incarcerated individuals in our community to have easier access to obtaining occupational licenses when they've trained for a job to be, for example, an electrician, um, a plumber, a barber, things like that. So they've, they've done the training and they have to go then to a licensing agency, but oftentimes those licensing agencies discriminate against them based on um, their prior arrest or conviction records. So this bill creates like certain, um, eliminates certain barriers in ways that these licensing agencies will be allowed to discriminate. So if you had a DUI from 10 years ago, that shouldn't stop you today from being able to be a barber. Maybe you shouldn't be a school bus driver, but there's opportunities that you still can train for and work for to you know get yourself in a financially stable situation after that experience and you've paid your time and your debt to the community. Um, it also opens avenues for um, appeals if someone does feel like they've been discriminated against and so this is something they've been pushing for for two years now and um, I organized uh, for it with a group called Railroad at Brown, which does criminal justice reform initiatives. We canvassed all around, um, but it's been largely the work of DARE and those other coalitions and certain faith leaders. Um, so it's really a big win for the community. Um, and a lot of people have put so much work and time into this. So it's really, really amazing that that got passed. And I think we can consider it one of those non-reformist reforms that we think um, are really a good starting point for moving towards abolition. And just to sign off, happy Independence Day, everybody. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool that we get to do this on the anniversary. Uh, I don't think that was ever our intention, but I realized it just sitting at the end. Like, yeah. Talk about setting something out 50 years ago now, uh, 250 years ago. Mm -hmm. 1776. Yeah, yeah. baby. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's funny because it, we're, we're it, we're called the Freedom Fighters and we had our first episode on July 4th. Yeah. You know what I'm saying, man? I feel like George Washington. I want to talk about these wow. critical issues like I you said. I think it's, it's really easy to feel angry like I don't want to celebrate this holiday today or this year or the past few years, but true patriots are people who see the change that mm -hmm. needs to be made and fight for it Real in leaders. our country. So. Mm. I guess we are practicing that in a way, and um, you know, we hope this like, is a start. They made manifest destiny one way, and we're taking it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're taking it head on. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Freedom Fighters, a part of Providence Haven. Freedom Fighters was born to seek out problems in the community and connect people who are already combating those issues to local support systems and resources. But we don't have all the resources, and that's where we will like to talk with you. You can find us at b.link haven for more information about our group as a whole. This podcast is keeping an important discussion alive, but more than just discussing these issues, we look to be a part of a movement working to change them.